All right. We are back. I, I'm sorry. I'm about a half hour later, so I had some issues come up and I had to take care of. However, I am back on uh, part four on this Joseph Smith and Entheogen's concept. I am sharing this article by several prominent scholars of entheogens and Joseph Smith's history. Uh, the article is exquisitely referenced, researched, understood. There's the article. For those of you who come late, you'll have to watch the video to get the reference to this article. It is an exceptionally interesting article. So what I want to do now is get on with, we've seen the uh, the first visions of Lucy Max Smith, and we've seen the visions of the first visions in dreams of Joseph Smith Sr. And the content, the content and context of the Joseph Smith Sr. dreams really are reflected in Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. Uh leading us to believe that he knew about his father's dreams. There's no reason why his mother and his father would hide the fact that they're dreaming prophetic dreams and that it has to do with their family, because that's the whole point is they wanted to tie in with their family. I just started you guys. Thank you. Welcome back. Hey, Gail Capstan, Wendy Rowland. Good afternoon. Debbie Joe, how you doing? Uh, I just got back myself. I'm 45 minutes late. It's all right. It's all good. Um, the shamanic transformation, hey Gail, good to see you again. The shamanic transformation of Joseph Smith occurred during his boyhood operation. It was such a trauma, and they do have precedents for this in ancient shamanism as well. Someone who was extremely sickly, someone who was uh, hurt very, very badly, has uh, this shamanic healer archetype uh, in life. And this does identify crisply Joseph Smith's personality structure. Uh, a shamanic healer's ability in ecstasy or trance to enter into contact with divine or semi-divine beings. Mercedes Eliade's gigantic study on shamanism describes all sorts of aspects of that issue and to consort with the dead with impunity. Now, that's fascinating. Yes, this is one of the shamanic aspects of the trance. And during the trance, the shaman either climbs the tree, which represents the axis mundi, the polar uh, ladder of the universe, getting up into his ascended celestial spheres through the climbing. It's generally resulted from severe trauma during early life. This shamanic complex and its archetypal pattern result from a severe illness or strenuous ordeals. And we know Joseph Smith had a bout of typhoid fever. His leg was operated on. It was a horrific operation. He did not have any anesthetics at the time. They, they broke pieces of bone out of his leg in order to try to save his leg, which they did. He had a limp throughout life because of that. But this ordeal could very well have shocked Joseph Smith into the shamanic 
transformation that does happen to different people. And the terror of such painful surgical assaults creates dissociative injuries within a child's developing brain that become an integral part of the psyche. And this can permeate all corners of his mind forever, is what the studies have shown. So we get to Joseph Smith, who had visionary experiences in his spiritual quests, and they display several specific features. Now, we're going to become very grateful for some of the early Mormon historians who did not follow the Brethren's Council to have correlation and to somehow make the first vision totally faith-promoting by skipping out details like they still do today, which is remarkable because it is exactly those little details that show us in very good probability that Joseph Smith was using entheogenic substances when he had his first vision. And this is remarkably interesting when we, hey, JB, maybe. Good to see you again. So let's take a look at this carefully. Analysis of the accounts and the features of his experience provide data to support this hypothesis. He deliberately employed entheogenic substances. This is the hypothesis that, that they're working with. The 1820, the first vision. So let's get on with Joseph Smith's first vision and see what we've got here. At 14 or 15 years of age, Joseph Smith Jr. embarked on a spiritual quest. So the connection here that they draw is to the alchemical philosophers, which is really, really eye-opening because these chemical philosophers, one object of his quest was wisdom which was the alchemical philosophy, pure total out. It was about wisdom, not turning actual physical lead into actual physical gold. Unfortunately, so many people, kings and queens included, concretized the metaphor. Alchemy was a spiritual discipline of the person's soul. And so now we get into some, some parallels, some themes that kind of open up dark alleyways in our mind of ignorance, which are enlightened through this analysis. And this wisdom which Joseph Smith was seeking, later revelation, the word of wisdom, this reflects the view that taking the proper things into one's body, avoiding addictants and using every herb in the season thereof, would enable the seeker to find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. And that's the DNC 89. So this connects in a remarkably strong manner. Before he went into the grove in 1820 or 1821 to obtain wisdom, that's what he lacked. And that is specifically what he says he went after. Three powerful precedents directed Joseph Smith to seek wisdom through what 
he ate. This is important. First, he had a prototype for his quest in the story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. They acquired wisdom by what they ate. Genesis 3, 6, and then verse 22. Next, the search for wisdom had also been modeled for him by the Christian alchemists and the Freemasons who sought wisdom through the philosopher's stone, the Bible's white stone, and by partaking of the elixir, the, quote, hidden manna of the book of Revelation. And this same book of Revelation also promised that to him that overcometh the gift to eat of the tree of life. Revelation 2.7 and then verse 17. So consumption of a substance is the anchor point. See, we have never been told it with this particular angle in view. But now, now that we see it, we go, oh, well, yeah, that's obvious. It's been hiding in plain sight, which is remarkable. Finally, the quest for wisdom was more immediately modeled for the young Joseph Smith by his father, the elder Joseph Smith, his father, who had been instructed through prophetic dreams how he could gain wisdom. And here again, the model that what was that one could acquire wisdom by what one Eight. Very important context here. Joseph Smith's spiritual quest is a continuation of his father's quest. And his father's quest was in very deed a quest for Christ's primitive church for temporal and spiritual salvation and wisdom. Joseph Jr. reported that a quest for wisdom was his motivation for going to the Grove of Trees, where at the age of 15, he experienced his first vision. So in what Lucy Max Smith, also called similarly Joseph Smith Sr.'s first vision, Joseph Sr. began a quest for wisdom and forgiveness of sins. And how he did this was he journeyed into a fallen wood. He was told, eat of certain edible materials found on a fallen tree and informed, this will make you wise and give unto you wisdom and understanding. It would be remarkable if the younger Joseph's quest for wisdom were not informed by the vision of his fathers, of course. Joseph Jr. should therefore have expected in order to obtain the wisdom that he was seeking, he would also need to eat something provided by God. However, where would he acquire this necessary entheogenic foods? Here again, his father's wisdom showed the way. His father's vision showed him the way. So let's see what happens when we explore both of his father and his visions in order to come to a better understanding of this whole affair. Joseph Jr. sought his visionary experience in the clearing in early spring. He's specific about that. This is, interestingly enough, the precise time when plants would be sprouting and entheogenic mushrooms could begin to be harvested amid the dead 
lumber, timber. Joseph, a firm believer in providence now, saw divine purposes in nature's provisions of various herbs and perceived God's hand in all things, the minute details of life. And we can read about this in the Doctrine and Covenants in his Revelations 59, 21, 8, and then 9, 10 through 11, according to Don Bradley. So after seeking a physical landscape for his own first vision, just like his father did in a dream, see, this is this is a good tie-in here. His quest for wisdom that actualized the dreamscape of his father's first vision, wisdom quest. Joseph Smith actualized his father's dream with his first vision. So this is improving and increasing not only the material, but the spiritual meaning of all of this. It's a family tie-in. This needs to be emphasized because we've kind of seen Joseph Smith isolated from his parents, and yet their spiritual quests dovetail beautifully like a glove on a hand with Joseph Smith's quests and his experiences and his temperament. It's, it's all connected together in a rather strong manner. What did Joseph intend to do when he arrived, if not to follow the commandment given to his father in his vision to obtain wisdom, you see? His father was told to eat something in order to gain wisdom. Joseph Smith would do the same thing, of course. Against the backdrop of the biblical Adam and Eve story, which is really an important context because they were a Bible-studying family, the Masonic biblical promises of hidden manna and the excuse me. So we have the biblical Adam and Eve story, the Masonic biblical promises of hidden manna, and the visionary commandment to his father to acquire wisdom by eating what God placed on the dead timber, Joseph Jr. was primed to perceive entheogenic plants and mushrooms at the culminating moment of his search for wisdom as a providence auguring that he needed to eat to obtain wisdom and of what he needed to eat to become wise. Another potential clue to what Joseph Jr. needed to eat to gain wisdom was the biblical description of it as hidden manna. The original biblical manna, appearing in the story of Moses' exodus, was described in Joseph's King James Bible as round edible objects found on the ground in the morning. Exodus 16, 13 through 15. Very interesting here. Round edible objects. Buttons are what mushrooms are called. If Smith expected the hidden manna to take a similar form, he would have found obvious candidates all around him in the spot where he went to seek his wisdom, growing on and hidden under the fallen trees of his father's clearing, which is exactly where mushrooms grow. Yes, early in the spring morning, Joseph Jr. knelt under a canopy of oaks, birch, and hemlock to petition God's forgiveness of his sins. The accounts of the ensuing vision 
Here is where we are so grateful to one of the Mormon writers, Eldon Watson. And I knew him. I was on the fair email list with him when uh, he was there. Very humble man, very well read and learned also. Eldon Watson compiled, he reveals the problematic mentation and peripheral symptoms secondary to the onset of what Burkhart identifies as hallucinogenic intoxication. Eldon Watson compiled all of the total experience of Joseph Smith's first vision. He left no detail out. He went through every single one of the different accounts and put everything in them together. Here's what we have. I'm so glad Watson did this because today's Mormon church does not give you the full details, which obscures the entheogenic connection. You can't help but wonder, gee, is that a conspiracy or is that just accidental? I'm not so sure, you know. Here we go. This is what happened with the total accumulation of details combined. He saw all kinds of improper pictures. He was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame him. He was blinded as thick darkness gathered around him. This is what they omit, right? They didn't while I was a missionary, but they have since then. His tongue cleaved to the roof of his mouth so that he could not speak. He heard a noise behind him like someone walking towards him. He sprang up on his feet and looked around but saw no person. He was ready to sink in despair and abandon himself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world with such marvelous power as I had never felt in any being. Had Joseph been taken to a local physician of the period during the initial phase of intoxication, the diagnosis of poisoning with a member of the Solanacea family, such as black henbane or D. stramonium, he would easily have been made the diagnosis with those symptoms. He was definitely on something. All those symptoms happen, very interestingly. Ibotenic acid, pantherine and agarine and muscimol are among the active components of Amanita muscaria, substances that with powerful effects on the central nervous system, although tropanic alkaloids are not present, the signs and the symptoms of poisoning with the fly agaric, that is the Amanita muscaria, these are called mycotropenic, and they resemble those produced by D. stramonium, A. belladonna, and H. niger. The symptoms Joseph Smith experienced related to those of the anticholinergic or the mycotropenic toxidrome. Well, what that means is hypertension and hypothermia. 
agitated hallucinations. These are the symptoms of those particular hallucinogens. This is what Joseph Smith went through. Agitated hallucinations, delirium and strange mental states, slurred speech, tremors, coma, and occasional seizures, tachycardia, and dysrhythmias, dry and flushed skin, especially the face dilated pupils, mydriasis, and blurred vision, and dry mouth. These symptoms constitute one of five basic toxidromes, features of the anticholinergic toxidrome in Joseph's account of his first vision include being rendered blind as a bat. That's a quote of Joseph Smith about his description. He was blind, mydriasis or blurred vision. Mad, oh no, it wasn't a quote of Joseph Smith. That's a quote of the descriptions of the symptoms. He was blind. Joseph said a great darkness came upon him. I'm sorry, I thought he was quoting Joseph Smith. No. This would be mydriasis, blurred vision. Darkness overcame him. Mad as a hatter. What we have here is the altered mental status, delusional paranoia. He thought he heard someone walking up to him and hallucinations and dry as a bone, dry mucous membranes. He could not speak. His tongue clave to the roof of his mouth. He was silenced by a being from the unseen world is Joseph's description of it. And a duration of intoxication lasting several hours or more. Paralysis associated with destromonium is also being reported. Young Joseph either understood the sublethal visionary dose, or else he was mighty lucky, since coma and death may ensue in severe poisonings of destromonium. Yeah. And like I say, none of us here under the umbrella of Mormon Discussion, Inc. are advocating the use of any drugs, natural or man-made or created through pharmaceuticals. I'm simply approaching this from the historical context. So from Eldon Watson's contextual harmony of Joseph Smith's first vision, we learned that just as Joseph was anticipating ego disillusion and imminent death, a light appeared to gradually descending toward him until he was actually surrounded by a brilliant light, creating a peculiar sensation throughout his whole system and causing his mind to be caught away from the natural objects with which he was surrounded and he was enwrapped in a heavenly vision. In the vision, Joseph's profound sense of guilt was assaged as an angel appeared the Lord, and assured him that his sins were forgiven. Then when I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking into heaven, without any strength, but with a mind in a state of calmness and peace indescribable. Joseph added, my soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy, and the Lord was with me. So they show a comparison of relationships between Smith's symptoms and those of the 
the anticholinergic syndrome, Joseph Jr.'s description of his first vision is profoundly personal, and so it's unlikely to have been manufactured due to embarrassing symptoms or symptomatic diagnostics of the intoxication he later attempted to hide or else at least contextualize. So this confirms Joseph was in a visibly physically altered condition after his initial recovery from the visionary state. He reports that upon his re-entry into his family home, his mother asked him, what is the matter? And... Similar symptoms also appeared during Mormon convert visionary experience when Joseph Smith founded his church in 1830. The positive symptoms associated with Smith's vision also suggest the known antidepressant effects of scorpolamine from D. stramonium or black henbane or possibly muscimol from Amanita muscaria. Scopop scopolamine, scopolamine, scopolamine. I'll get this. Scopolamine produces rapid and significant symptoms, improvement in patients with depression. It's similar to the afterglow phenomena of classic entheogens. So a feature of Smith's first vision experience that cries out for explanation is its stark tangibility and experienced veridicality. He emerged from his experience of the demonic and the divine, convinced of the actuality of the beings that he had encountered. By exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy, which had seized upon me, and at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and ruin and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world who had such a marvelous power as I had never before felt in any being. I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light, I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak unto me. So Smith either actually found himself bound by an actual being and then actually saw a light, or there were neurophysiological changes in his brain and body that facilitated their perception. Even if Smith is understood to have encountered external spiritual forces, one would have to explain what physiological changes facilitated his ability to physically engage with these entities that cannot usually be seen or felt. So entheogenic destramonium explains how Joseph Smith perceived his engagement with spiritual forces as an actual physical encounter. In other words, is this Joseph Smith just making stuff up or was he on an entheogenic trip describing what actually happens because his experience is similar to other experiences 
on D. stramonium. Interesting, isn't it? Granted, later on, Joseph Smith was using this for personal political means and ways to retain or else reacquire personal prestige and power. That is true, but initially, nothing of the sort. So this gets really interesting. A high dose of psilocybin would have provided the mind-opening, cosmological, transformative, and disintegrating, reintegrating aspects of the experience, while D-stramonium would have given the experience of another reality, which is one of its symptoms. So he's in a whole different reality. Initially in the grips of a terrifying, physically real even evil being, Unbeknownst to Joseph Smith, as for the mythical Adam and Eve, eating the forbidden fruit entailed an experience of evil intangible form. You, know, you can call it the Satan slash the serpent. Is this story in Genesis of Adam and Eve an actual historical occurrence, or is it a description of what happens when we eat the fruit of eternal life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And is the serpent a symbol, just like the tree of life, a symbol of acquiring eternal life for men and women? That gets real deep, doesn't it? Yeah. Have we concretized the metaphor of the Adam and Eve story is what I'm asking. If we have, we're completely misunderstanding the whole issue. And yet this Edenic background, this Edenic treasure trove of information on different types of trees, which the mushrooms were equated with in Christian art, way later true in the, in the medieval Renaissance. Yeah, of course, but that's not to say it wasn't earlier thought that way. So this really piques our curiosity. Smith also acted, oh, here we go, unbeknownst to Joseph Smith, as for the mythical Adam and Eve, eating the forbidden fruit, I, I did. I said all that, the Satan serpent, in order to obtain wisdom, you have to eat the fruit and then confront the evil. That's what Joseph Smith described in his first vision. That's what the Genesis Adam and Eve story is describing in Genesis. That is to experience the deepest abyss, and that is described by some who get involved with these entheogens. They enter the abyss, Joseph said, thick darkness surrounded me, besides commune with God. So it's possible that Joseph Smith used another substance another species of psilocybin-containing mushroom. It's less likely, though, although it's possible because it was around and there are pictures of the mushrooms that are around the Hill Cumorah area and in the Sacred Grove, which Joseph Smith visited. The mushrooms are there. 
So many examples of entheogenic experiences are reported in peer-reviewed literature and on the internet that bear a striking similarity to those of Joseph Smith. For example, religious historian Houston Smith, initiation into, quote, ultimate reality, unquote. He was occasioned by a psilocybin-containing mushroom. Houston Smith himself reports what the day accomplished was to enable me for the first time to experience the respective levels of the chain of being all the way to its top. The dominant effects of the experience were two. Awe, which I had known conceptually as the distinctive religious emotion, but had never before experienced awe so intensely, and certainty. There was no doubting that the reality I experienced was ultimate. And that conviction has remained. So there's Houston Smith's testimony. He sounds just like Joseph, doesn't he? I'd seen a vision. I'd seen two personages. I'm not going to deny that. I had the experience. Even though people mocked him. Who were they to mock? Who cares? I had the experience. Same with Houston Smith. That's kind of interesting. So in the same year that Houston ingested peyote cactus and reported, I noted mounting tension in my body that turned into tremors in my legs. I began experiencing the clear unbroken light I was now seeing with the force of the sun in comparison with which everyday experience reveals only flickering shadows in a dim cavern. I saw worlds within worlds. Wow. You go, holy cow. Joseph Smith taught that doctrine. Worlds without end. Kind of interesting. Worlds within worlds is how Houston Smith described the other unseen reality that is opened up when the filter of the brain is further opened up through useful herbs used in their season, following Joseph Smith's wording. Remarkable. So Heinrich ingested Amanita muscaria as the entheogenic facilitator, and he also reported, I felt like I weighed thousands of pounds and could no longer sit up. In a great darkness and a great silence, the heavens opened above my head. The bliss I had experienced prior to this new revelation now paled to insignificance in an immensity of light that was the purest love. The absolute profundity of the experience cannot be denied, neither can be adequately expressed, though one is moved to try. So there again is yet another report of an experience that has many similarities to Joseph Smith. Now, again, this is not to knock down Joseph Smith. It is not to take away the idea that he was a true prophet. I'm not interested in the religious aspect of that part of Mormonism here. 
I'm simply exploring the historical symptoms with the historical depictions and explanations, which Joseph Smith, as well as many other early Mormon converts who also had their religious visions, speaking of tongues, ascensions to heaven, etc., I'm just reporting it as a historic phenomenon of why this has a real good probability of being based on an entheogenic substance, right? This is not to get rid of Joseph Smith. It's not to mock or poo-poo religion at all. It's not even to threaten reality. It is simply to understand his experience in light of, interestingly enough, now even non-Mormons can have absolutely every kind of experience and symptom that Joseph Smith and the early Mormons had, but they don't hold the Melchizedek priesthood. How is that possible? They don't belong to the only one true Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. How is it possible for them to have as powerful a spiritual experiences as Joseph Smith? Simple. It's not about belonging to a religious organization. It's not about being given a putative priesthood power from God. None of that has any relevance at all when one ingests and theogenic substances. These are the symptoms. So it makes sense to me, at least for right now, that it really does make sense that Joseph Smith was using antheogenic substances. And not only that, but his audiences, whom he put behind closed doors and had the sacrament with, also had those same experiences, not because Joseph Smith hypnotized them, not because he preached and they felt the spirit, is because he gave them the sacrament, which gave them the spirit. Now, this description is remarkable because it is a description of the mind opening up to a further level, I'll say, I don't know how else to describe it, a different substrate, perhaps, of reality that is now accessible because the brain is no longer shut off of its natural use. It has received help from the herbs of the field, and it opens up in its greater potential power, which is the ascent. That's how these guys describe that. That's how we would understand it at this point. So, and then um, I want to get into the psychedelics in the Book of Mormon. And you read that, you heard that right. Psychedelics in the Book of Mormon. Now, Joseph Smith is putting his experiences into the Book of Mormon descriptions. Several of these descriptions match symptoms of entheogens. Remarkable. Several times, 
in the Book of Mormon suggests Joseph Smith's awareness of psychedelics and their effects. The Book of Mormon functioned as sacred scripture and acted as a psychopomp for the early Mormon converts. Of course, we know that because they were seeking direction. They were seeking their personal experience of gaining wisdom for themselves with God under the influence of entheogenic material. Consistent with this view, Mormon Union psychologist or psychiatrist Grossbeck argues for the Book of Mormon as symbolic history. We suggest that passages in the Book of Mormon and other early Mormon sacred writings guide spiritual experiences as outlined by Leary, that's right, that's Timothy Leary, Metzner, and Alpert. In discussing the Tibetan Book of the Dead to establish a setting for predisposing early Mormon converts to direct and to personal experience with God through the spiritual ecstasies that they experienced and went through. Another aspect of the set and setting of early Mormon visionary experience is Joseph Smith himself. Now, this was an important point. I, I, I see how some critics argue Joseph Smith being a con man. I get that. And in fact, I'm sympathetic to that off and on, truly, without question. However, this kind of adds a new light that gives a more positive vibe, I'll say to Joseph Smith, rather than just a dirty, filthy, stinking, greedy con man. There is another angle here. Now that this entheogenic enterprise has opened up into filling in all of the lost cracks and problems with the Mormon history, this also brings about a better understanding, in my opinion. And Again, I'm not trying to convince or convert anybody. If you want to think Joseph Smith's a dirty rat, you go right ahead. That's all drink to that. But there is another possible interpretation that makes even as good a sense. Let's go with this. So, Joseph Smith, we can, we can come to understand Joseph Smith as an archetype shaman. And how do we do that? I mean, okay, an archetype shaman, that sounds cool. What is it? <laughs> yeah, what does this accomplish, right? So let's look at this. There is an emphasis in the literature by Leary and others for the need for a trusted person to remind and refresh the memory of the voyager during the experience, and therefore Smith was that trusted person. Now, I just read Fred Allen's Wolf uh, book, The Eagle's Quest, where the quantum physicist Fred Allen Wolf also went and found a shaman and underwent his own spiritual quest for knowledge. And the shaman is a critical component in this event. In this instance, 
rather than con man priming their minds so that they think they have a real vision, Joseph Smith is understood instead to be a shaman figure in order to help the converts acquire the vision quest. Kind of an interesting twist here. Herbs, although not frequently mentioned in the Book of Mormon, are highly endorsed as medicines, explicitly and entheogenic substances implicitly. For instance, the Book of Mormon speaks of the excellent qualities of the many plants and roots which God had prepared to remove the cause of diseases. We argue here that Smith, in the Book of Mormon, he was intending to reference not only the treatment of bodily diseases, but also maladies of the soul, while traditional herbs may be useful for treating ailments relating to the body. So he's doing the full treatment, soul and body in this Book of Mormon. It is the entheogenic herbs that lift the mood and it relieves despair, as we've read before, as demonstrated after partaking of unusual fruit described in Joseph Sr.'s entheogenic dream discussed above and in the Book of Mormon, Tree of Life. Yeah, the Lehi's dream, the allegory, which we're going to discuss now. In the Book of Mormon, Smith associates the use of herbs with symptomology such as death-like experiencing lasting days rather than hours, right? Symptoms resulting in sensations of tongue swelling, sensations of motion, taste of light, enlightenment, and mood elevation. So these symptoms, in our view, demonstrate that Smith encoded his entheogenic knowledge encoded in the Book of Mormon. A remarkable idea. Makes me personally want to go reread the Book of Mormon to find those references, right? So this is, uh, this is kind of cool. So the death and rebirth symbolism. Let's look at this. The ego death is what the death they're talking about. Now, this is... Peter Kingsley's big uh, subject, well, I mean, it's Alan Watts, it's uh, Wasson and uh, Ruck, Carl Ruck, Brian Murescu talks about that, absolutely, yeah, it's ego death that they're talking about, not physical body death, and yet it really is death, let's keep that clear, right? So, Mormon historian Don Bradley, he interprets the Joseph Smith's first vision is an initiation, or rather an endowment, transforming an unaccomplished young man from an improvised family into religious royalty as a seer and a prophet. Say? So this is his initiation, as it were, his shamanic initiation, not only within his family, but to all of the, uh, the group, the religious group that gathered around him. We argued here that Smith's first vision, facilitated by an entheogen, corresponds to similar royal entheogen-infused death and rebirth initiation rituals. So the new king, 
would have undergone death by means of a potion administered to him by the high priest in the gathering of the inner group of the holders of the royal secrets. This drug would have been a hallucinogenic that slowly induced a catatonic state, leaving the new king as inert as a corpse. So an entheogenic initiation of this nature would change the thoughts. It's also going to obviously change the feelings previously held by the new king. And two Book of Mormon narratives reflect entheogen-infused royal initiation rites. Very fun to look at. In the first narrative, after being chastised for unrighteousness, the king fell unto the earth as if he were dead for the space of two days under the power of God and the light which did light up his mind had infused such joy into his soul. And similarly, the queen then arose and cried, O blessed Jesus, clasping her hands, being filled with joy. That's in the Book of Mormon. In the second narrative, the son of a prophet king, unprepared to succeed his father on the throne, well, he is reprimanded by his father. And so here's what the son says. I fell to the earth, and it was for the space. This is Alma the Younger, right? You recognize this. I fell to the earth, and it was for the space of three days and three nights that I could not open my mouth. Boy, I'll bet you wish, I'll bet you guys wish I'd take some of this crap so I'd shut up, huh? <laughs> I could not open my mouth, neither had I use of my limbs. I thought that I could become extinct, both soul and body. After three days and three nights, I cried within my heart. Notice the symbolism here. Three days and three nights, Jesus, three days and three nights, etc. This is all deliberate planned, right? Because we're talking symbolic initiation, not actual literal history. It is irrelevant if Jesus actually was dead for three days and three nights. That has not, we're literalizing, we're concretizing the metaphor if we nitpick stupid little historical details like that in order to try to prove someone is lying to us and wrong and it's all fake and of utterly no value, we completely miss the whole boat. This is symbolic. We're concretizing the metaphor, so we need to step back and grasp the actual meaning, and it's not historical, okay? And, and that's quite important. So in the second narrative, he says, Oh, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. And when I thought this, I was heralded up by the memory of my sins no more, and oh, what joy. Again, that, that theme, the happy, the joy, the overwhelming love, and the, wow, I feel fantastic. That is one of the symptoms of an entheogenic trip, without question, in some people. And what marvelous light. Again, the joy, the light. That's the other theme, of course. I did behold, yea, my soul was filled with joy, as exceeding as was my pain. So these remarkable narratives in the Book of Mormon parallel the first vision accounts given by Joseph Smith, supporting the thesis that his first vision was an entheogen-infused initiation.
And here's why. Because in his first vision, Smith felt profound guilt and shame associated with his sin. He says so. He was in a mortal fear of sudden destruction. He says so. When Smith came to himself, he was sprawling on his back, and it was some time before his strength returned. And afterward, he had feelings of calmness and peace indescribable. So this is more than coincidence, is what these gentlemen are arguing. They're saying Joseph Smith's first vision and the Book of Mormon death and rebirth accounts parallel entheogen-infused royal initiation rites. It seems reasonable to conclude that Smith's experience and the Book of Mormon accounts were related to esotericism and entheogens. So, oh, and, and, oh, and this is wonderful too. This next section, it's short, but wow. Uh, it's just a new look at something that we've probably all read, and none of us, including myself, I'm not doing this, I'm doing this, actually caught the significance of what this might be showing us. So, so let me uh, let me share this with you too. This is pretty good. So, one feature of the visionary experience that we're considering, and it's reported in the Book of Mormon, is Synesthesia, the simulation of one sense modality provoking sensation in another sense modality. Ah, this gets really cool. Let's take a look. This is a strong suggestion of entheogenic ingestation. In the Book of Mormon, Joseph informs the convert that after ingesting the seed of the fruit of the tree, they should expect it to feel swelling within the chest, closely followed by swelling motions. Now, this is the famous Alma 32 chapter on prayer and how to gain a proper testimony, etc., Little have the Mormons actually realized that this is describing entheogens and their symptoms. Wow! What a, what an eye-opener, man. You kind of go, ah, yeah, we're in for some real treats here. So after the onset of the swelling motion, Smith informed converts to expect the appearance of light that enlightens the understanding, so the mind doth begin to expand. In other words, they, they experience the desired psychedelic properties of the seed. So this idea, this mind expansion theme is accompanied, according to Smith, by the taste of light suggesting the phenomena of psychedelic-associated synesthesia. When you feel these swelling motions, it beginneth to be delicious. Ye have tasted this light. Ha! Wow! Two examples will be most relevant here. And again, it's in the Book of Mormon. See, we're going to get a whole new way to appreciate and see the stories in the Book of Mormon based on Joseph Smith's experience, all of which 
have antheogenic symptoms properly described in every aspect that apparently Smith went through. And that was one that these gentlemen are, are proposing that that is one reason why they are described so well in the Book of Mormon as well. So here it is, Lehi's dream. Of course, in Nephi, Lehi's dream of the tree of life. That's one. The second one is Alma's parable of a seed that grows into a tree of life. Again, the same theme, different people. Joseph Jr. inserts into the Book of Mormon a vision of an Edenic tree and its fruit, and upon ingesting it, the profound experience of the love of God. And this is nearly identical to his father's Edenic vision in 1811. All of the ties are there, man. It's real interesting. Another probable reference to synesthetic bodily symptoms in the text of the Book of Mormon appears in a parable by the prophet Alma, and this is where he compares God's word to a seed. The parable describes the cultivation of a plant from seed. So ultimately, this ends up in a full-grown tree revealed to be like Lehi's, a tree of life, which is also bearing fruit. Now we will compare the word unto a seed. Now if you give place that a seed may be planted in your heart. Behold, if it is a true seed or a good seed, if you do not cast it out by your unbelief, that you will resist the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, ye will begin to say within yourselves, well, it must needs be that this is a good seed or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul. Yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding. Yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. Well, the effects of cultivating this seed, what are they? They expand the mind. They enlarge the soul. They also stimulate the taste of light, and they also produce inexpressible joy and happiness. So in these passages, Joseph Smith encapsulated the very meaning of the current meanings of psychedelic and entheogen. Now that's a hell of a conclusion, you guys. Think about this. We're, this is in the Book of Mormon, man. Yeah. Remarkable. And more importantly, they go on. Here, I'm ranting and raving about that and I say, but more importantly, and this is as far as Joseph Smith himself is concerned, the reader of the Book of Mormon is also invited to experience the same psychedelic or entheogenic enlightenment, synesthesia, and transformation as he had. Yeah. Wow. And then they talk about the idea of the, well, the, the visionary dreams of Joseph Smith and his father and his with the Indians and going through this elevation of mood. Peyote helps elevate the mood. Uh, and so now the the uh the entheogenic ordinances, I gotta get to this, man. This is really interesting. 
this was one of the best parts of the paper as far as I was concerned, because this absolutely opened my eyes completely. I, I was blown away. So we go back to early Mormonism. So we're back there in Joseph Smith's day. Now, his converts were anticipating what he told them they were going to receive. He had put them in the right mood, as it were. He, I mean, you could call this a strengthening of the mind if you cared to. Uh, it's just like a hypnotist in a way. You have to be in the proper mental state, mentality, if you're going to be hypnotized or if you're going to have a good experience. There are people who have nothing but bad experiences on entheogens, right? Yeah. And so, of course, they're going to equate it with Satan and wickedness and evil, and we have to outlaw this. Not knowing that there's also just as many people who not only have the bad experiences, like Joseph Smith, but they turned into good experiences. It was the mindset. Joseph Smith did not go into the sacred grove with anything but the desire for wisdom. Well, that made all the difference. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, I've called it brainwashing because to an extent it has to be in order for the effect to take place. And this is how Joseph Smith would have understood it. This is how today's research is into this is beginning to understand it. It does make a difference. That doesn't make it any less real. It just makes a difference on the type of experience you really could be having. Yeah. So uh, let's look at this. They The converts anticipated the visions. and. and Interestingly enough, Joseph Smith told them, and they anticipated literally now direct face-to-face -face confrontation with God. Now, would today's Mormonism tell you that's possible? Would they actually encourage you to seek that? Hell no. They have minimized this and dumbed this down to the point of blase nothing. It's why I call it a placebo because it is blase nothing. Joseph Smith, by absolute black and white contrast between today's Mormonism, said, oh yeah, not only can you, you will have that experience. Here, come with me and let's take the sacrament together. And I'm not exaggerating. That's how he did it. So, and here we go. The context of the church ordinances administered by Joseph Smith. This is the clue. And here's how Smith himself explained it. He said, okay, this greater priesthood administers the gospel and holds the keys to the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of God is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. For without this, no man can see the face of God, even the Father and live. 
So importantly now, visions and ecstasies in early Mormonism, these are associated with ordinances involving the serving of bread and wine sacraments, the anointing of the bodies with anointings, while the expected visionary Nauvoo temple endowment also features oil anointings, but adds plucking fruit from tree branches. Were you aware of that? That is really remarkable. In June, Joseph Smith, 1839, told trusted leaders, God has not revealed anything to Joseph, but what he will make known unto the least saint. For the day must come when no man need say to his neighbor, Know ye the Lord, for all shall know. He will have the personage of Jesus Christ to attend him, and the visions of the heavens will be opened unto him, and the Lord will teach him face to face. There it is flat out. You don't hear Mormon leaders today say anything close to this, do you? About every Joe regular and Sally Molly Mormon Jane. Not at all. You don't hear this kind of preaching. That's because they're not doing it the way Joseph Smith did it. They can't guarantee you the experience Joseph Smith could. And how would he be able to do that? By now, we, we can pretty much guess the answer, entheogenic sacraments. So it's likely that also, and this is an important anchor point for Joseph Smith and his theology, is the models of biblical visions. And esoteric-minded mentors guided Joseph Smith to ingest something crucial to his own visionary experience. Genesis 2.17. So this pointed to the need to eat the fruit of any tree in the garden to retain their peace and happiness and tranquility. So this possibly could be Amanita muscaria. Absolutely. But not the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which could possibly have been Datura. That's one way to look at the trees in the Garden of Eden. Wow, eye-opening. Oh, so Moses instructed Israel to eat manna that tasted like a wafer made with honey. That's Exodus 16.31. Always the eating. Notice that. Ezekiel chapter 3, 1 through 3. So he eats a scroll, and he describes it as sweet as honey as well. In verse 1, right, of chapter 3, and the consumption of a scroll or a book tasted as honey for sweetness. Well, there you go again. And again, Jesus, he said, to him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. That's the Revelation 2.17. So this is kind of the biblical anchoring involved, which Joseph Smith would have been well aware of. And in each of these cases, the ingestion of some substance, tasting bitter, sweet, or forbidden, it was always transformative. That was the key. So gastrointestinal upset is a feature of ergot alkaloids. Psilocybe species and Amanita muscaria mushroom ingestion, ingestion. Boy, I don't know why I keep saying ingestion. Sorry. So Smith expounded on the revelation of St. John here. What he says, the little book which was eaten by John, as mentioned in the 10th chapter of Revelation, well, it's understood to be an ordinance. There you go. There you go. We know how Joseph Smith was understanding the biblical precedents, don't we? Yeah, 
right there. So Smith informs Converse that visions are associated with consuming a substance or else its application of the anointing oil, see, during Mormon ordinance work. That's how he was doing it. That is how he set it up. Very cool. Okay, so now let's look at early convert visions. This is really uh, worth understanding. So as the budding prophet Joseph Smith. Now, that's one of the things that always perplexed me personally. I'm serious. Um, I, I was actually somewhat uncomfortable with it. When Joseph's visage would change while he was with people. And of course, everyone's well, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Well, if you understand the Spirit of the Lord as the entheogen, then it very well could change your countenance, right? Well, this occurred several times in front of witnesses. This isn't something you can kind of, I can't just sit here and focus and concentrate and change my visage and become much lighter and brighter, unless, of course, I scoot under here, under the light. Whoa, dude! Right? I mean, So that always kind of bothered me. But in this case, uh, it was apparent to observers with Joseph Smith. His demeanor during visions did not so readily betray an altered state. So early Mormon converts, and of course, these guys are novice prophets themselves. Joseph Smith said so. You know, he wasn't against anybody unless they got their own tears stone and received their own revelations contradicting his, <laughs> like Page did. Yeah. Yeah, there's always something, isn't there? Boy. So they would experience altered states similar to those reported by Joseph Smith in his early visions. So in an 1832 shared experience, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon related what they saw in the vision and they wrote the revelation down. And then afterwards, Sidney Rigdon was as limp as a rag. He was exhausted and he was just, and people mentioned that and Joseph said, oh, well, yeah, but Sidney's not as used to it as I am. Sydney is not as used to the experience as I am. He was pale and exhausted, they said. So the uh, an observer reported, Joseph sat firmly and calmly all the time in the midst of a magnificent glory. But Sydney sat limp and pale. Apparently, as limber as a rag, Joseph said, Sidney is not as used to it as I am, for a description of this vision. Joseph and Sidney's account of this vision was added to the Doctrine and Covenants, of course. It was called a transfiguration, physical changes. Now, a transfiguration is a change that converts would experience in their own bodies in connection with priesthood ordinances. That's not something you can just fake in mass, but it is something you can experience in mass if you're having the ordinances. Sacraments, anointing with oils, even anointing with water, etc. Yeah, for real. Such a transformation of the body, according to Joseph Smith, 
was needed if they desired to see God and heaven, so that while in the flesh they may be able to bear his presence in the world of glory. That's how it's described in 76 verses 117 and 118, and then in Moses 1, 11 and 31. So Smith taught that Mormon ordinances and transfiguration, these were prerequisite to visionary experience. Partaking of an entheogen would account for the physical symptoms experienced by Sidney Rigdon and other early Mormon converts, and it would also account for the transfiguration phenomenon. Early Mormons were led to understand that distressing bodily symptoms following sacraments and anointings were nothing to fear, but instead to eagerly anticipate, and this is where the role of a shaman comes in. Joseph Smith was that shaman initiating, helping them get through this ordinance, this experience of seeing God, right? So that's why I thought that was so remarkable. Early Mormon converts prepared for entheogenic church ordinances in several ways. Many of the most ardent early Mormon converts joined Mormonism after hearing of convert visions and after reading the Book of Mormon, which, like we showed, expresses a lot of that type of stuff. It has multiple allusions to entheogenic experience. Well, that's what they wanted, right? So they came flocking. Joseph promised. So these illusions help prepare them mentally and spiritually and even psychologically without question for the experiences in the ordinances. The ordinance kind of takes you one step at a time through it to acquire it. So that is how shamanistic Joseph Smith used this material. His promise that they would see God and experience visions or dreams or ecstasies, it would occur in receiving sacraments and endowments. They anoint the head of the person to become a king or a queen. Well, once you're anointed with an entheogenic substance after you've been through the entire, again, Garden of Eden story of partaking of the fruit of the tree, you see, at the beginning of the endowment, right? They've had the whole rest of the endowment to learn about the creation, to experience certain key words, passwords, handshakes, what have you. By the time they get to the veil and they're anointed as well as having ingested the fruit of the tree, then when they get to the celestial room, they really do have their ascension. This shit is real to them. Now, that is a fascinating look at the endowment, in my opinion. And I I get it that there's going to be Mormons who are morally offended. They are going to be morally outraged that such mockery of the atonement is taking place. You want to know what the ugly mockery of the endowment is? It is the Mormon making it a placebo. There's your mockery. There's your hypocrisy. The real thing has once again, like the real history, been taken away. That's the mockery. Not me showing the original context on this video. 
So if Mormons get morally outraged, send them my way. I'd love to have a conversation. Yep. So, and then the three witnesses' visions. Again, the same principle. By now, we're getting this, you know, this systematic repeat of how so much of this magnificence of visionary experience of the heavens, experience of God occurred so frequently, so often in this one group of Americans. And it completely disappeared when Joseph Smith died. Well, there's the most magnificent hint of all. The shaman was gone. No other shamans replaced him. Now it's all placebo. They sure don't teach the same thing Joseph Smith taught right now, right? They've definitely gone way down in importance and value compared to what Joseph Smith had. Yeah. Now they do it by the number. They have shortened the endowment so short that you don't even have time to take a freaking nap anymore. They just run you through. You're a cog in the machine. Hop on this Ferris wheel, baby. They run you around. Done. Now get out. Good. Oh, you've done 39 endowments this month. Congratulations. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. When the endowments only take three minutes and no brain power. It's nothing. It is a complete waste of time. But it wasn't in Joseph Smith's day. That's a huge difference, man. So, and and the three witnesses. Now, uh, interestingly, again, this has been utilized, the description of having seen the vision with their spiritual eyes has been proposed to mean they were faking it not so fast. This entheogenic proposal gives a new twist to this. It had better have been their spiritual eyes of their physical. It had to have been if they're based on entheogenic visions, which again, Joseph Smith did describe to the witnesses what they would see. He gave them, he primed them definitely to have this experience of that angel, not the one with the flaming sword threatening them, which I still have trouble accepting. I, I really, I think that's Joseph Smith being an ass, but that's just my view. But uh, this priming, this idea of this angel showing them the plates and all, if that is based on entheogenic substances, then it makes a lot better sense, at least to me, right? So, and in 3 Nephi 28, uh, in the Book of Mormon, and this is kind of cool, Joseph Smith reveals that the physical body must change and it must transfigure to see spiritual things or else they would die. And that's Moses 1, 3, or, or Moses 1 and 3rd Nephi 28. So, and from Whitmer's testimony, when he says, yes, I beheld it with my spiritual eyes, 
Uh, it appears that the Book of Mormon witnesses were informed by Joseph Smith, either directly or in the form of the Book of Mormon passages themselves, that symptoms precedes visionary experience. First you get the symptoms, then you get the vision. Yeah, that's interesting. The telling of Joseph Smith Sr.'s entheogenic dreams and the entheogenic accounts in the Book of Mormon would also provide yet another precedent for this whole experience. Now, in the 1830s, the New York visions. Let's look at these. They also see there's a lot more to this than you thought, huh? I, I'm, I'm, you really need to get this paper. And, and if you've come late and you don't know what paper I'm quoting from, I show it at the first of the video. Go back to it and you can see it. It's, a, it's quite a study. And again, I have put the link to their Sunstone presentation in uh, my video from last night. So the uh, Joseph Smith promised convert visions, but only in Mormon ordinances and in the presence of church leaders. In the first conference of the church held June 9, 1830, in Fayette, New York, organizing the church, Smith formalized the instructions to oft partake of the sacrament. Here is what Joseph Smith wrote. <laughs> this is good stuff, man. This is the manna from heaven we've been waiting for. Yeah, baby. So we partook together of the emblems of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Much exhortation and instruction was given, and the Holy Ghost was poured out upon us in a miraculous manner. Many of our number prophesied, whilst others had the heavens opened to their view, and were so overcome that we had to lay them on beds or other convenient places. Among the rest was Brother Newell Knight, who had to be placed on a bed, being unable to help himself. By his own account of the transaction, he could not understand why we should lay him on the bed, as he felt no sensibility of weakness. He, fell, he felt his heart filled with love, with glory and pleasure unspeakable, and could discern all that was going on in the room when, all of a sudden, a vision of futurity burst upon him. He saw there represented the great work, which through my instrumentality was yet to be accomplished. He saw heaven opened and beheld the Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and had it made plain to his understanding that the time would come when he would be admitted into his presence to enjoy his society forever and ever. They shouted hosannas to God and the Lamb, and they rehearsed the glorious things which they had seen and felt whilst they were yet in the Spirit. Notice that context. That is really important. We now have Joseph Smith's definition of what it meant to be in the Spirit. All of these symptoms are entheogenic toxicity drunkenness, as it were, with the sacrament, bread, and wine. They were experiencing these experiences that was in the spirit because of the entheogenic substances. A new, an interesting definition. 
So this shows this relationship is what I'm trying to say of the, the relationship of the symptoms associated with the visionary experiences. So Joseph Smith surreptitiously used entheogenic material in the Mormon sacrament ordinance. Uh, and so in Kirtland, Ohio, now Kirtland was a very interesting situation because they were accused of intemperance. And that really bothered Joseph Smith. But he did give them entheogenic substances, and that is what gave the Mormon Pentecost at Kirtland. Very similar to what was witnessed in New York. And during the early days of the church, there were unusual spiritual manifestations associated with the drinking of sacramental wine, behaviors of such a shocking nature that it impaired the image of the young church among sober people. You don't really hear about that much in Mormon history today, do you? No, of course not. Because some truths are not very useful. Right, Boyd? So William S. Smith testifying, I have attended the meetings at Mr. Morley's. In the house, I have seen young men and women seemly unconscious, and the folks said they had lain so for two days, and they were on their beds, and nobody tried to prevent us looking at them, but we were not allowed to go into the room. Now, that recalls several scripture ideas, too. Oh, he fell because the Spirit of the Lord overcame him, and he was out for two days. Notice what they're equating the Spirit of the Lord with, the substance. Interesting. Yeah. On another occasion, Moss concluded that Mormon sacrament meetings exceeded the wildest scene ever exhibited among the Methodists. This is the non-Mormon uh, Moss uh, that I talked about yesterday. I'm trying to find his name up here. Can't seem to find it. Anyway, he said it was wild. See, you don't get this in today's Sunday school lessons. In fact, today is so boring in Mormonism, uh, you don't even go to church anymore, right? There's not, no reason to go there. You just sit there and listen to some idiot pontificate on nothing. So they ex the, the Mormon sacrament meetings exceeded the wildest scenes ever exhibited among the Methodists and instead became fully satisfied the wine was medicated. Yeah, it's too bad we didn't go back to that. I'd probably go back to church. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? The catalepsy could, of course, have been induced without the aid of wine, but the scene was reminiscent of the first conference of the church a year earlier at Fayette, New York. Same thing, wild times interesting, because it strongly supports the conjecture of Smith including psychoactive substances in the sacraments. 238, 239, and then of course the negative, well taken together, the events of 1830 and 1831 conferences, they strongly suggest entheogenic influence and compares well with Joseph Smith's earlier entheogenic facilitated early visions, and then the negative reactions came out. And it was because of the negative publicity in the Palmyra Reflector and his sleight of hand. It was a deceptive performance. Uh, 
they accused him of trickery, of con mannery, and so on and so forth, right? And so that really bugged him. Uh, sacrament wine was not the only possible carrier for an entheogenic substance, however, uh, that enhanced the sacral experience of early Mormons. The uh, the idea of ergot-infested rye possibly mixed with the sacramental bread is also possible. And uh, it induced preternatural experiences in the life of Joseph Smith's great-grandfather, Samuel Smith. So ergot-infected rye was widely used as a medicinal remedy in Joseph Smith's day. And it may have also lent itself to more spiritual uses. And complaints about the Mormonism's enthusiasms really began to rise in the various newspapers, the Vermont Gazette, published in editorial. Some church members lie in trances a day or two. Perfect. And visit the unknown regions. In the meantime, some are taken with a fit of terrible shaking, which they say is the power of the Holy Ghost. Perfect. We're beginning to get the early Mormon context of the Holy Ghost. And we're getting the early Mormon context of what it meant to be in the spirit. And it is nothing like what these guys today in Salt Lake City teach at all. Not even close. Because nothing today is based on the entheogenic materials like it was in Joseph Smith's day. So uh, the negative publicity really dampered Joseph Smith for a while, and he toned it down. And uh, the, the, the negative descriptions are all really wild hooting experiences. Um, and so in how long? Oh, man, I've gone an hour and a half already again. My gosh, time goes by. Okay, I'm going to, yeah, and now I get to the Nauvoo Temple. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, don't hate me for this. Oh, hey, hey, yeah, this is the wrap-up. Oh, and have I got some fabulous pictures to show you tonight. Oh, heavens, yes. Oh, I'm, I'm close to the end right now. Okay, hey, I'm going to be able to wrap this up tonight on a huge note. I have some uh, wonderful pictures to show you. Uh, and tonight will be the, uh, tonight at six o'clock, we will top this off with the Nauvoo Temple experience, the Nauvoo uh, endowment, and tie it in with one of Joseph Smith's seer stones. No joke. Uh, it's fantastic how they do this. So, so I'm going to call it good for now. We're at an hour and a half. So thank you for showing up. I'll see you tonight. Uh, what time is it? Three o'clock. So in three hours, we'll take a three hour. I'm not going to be late tonight. I'll be here at six o'clock. I was a little late this afternoon, but it's all good. It all works out. So thank you for putting up with all of this kind of noise. It's uh, it's a boatload of fun for me, and I, I hope it's enjoyable and worth your times. I'm sure it is. Uh, and I will see you guys tonight for the wrap-up, and we'll have a great time tonight. So have a good afternoon for the rest of the afternoon, and I'll see you in three hours. <laughs>